0: I'm David French.
1: And I'm Sarah Isger. And together we host the Advisory Opinions podcast. Kind of a legal nerd thing, David? Legal nerd thing and culture nerd thing, too. Our nerdery knows no bounds. Nerdery squared. So join us and subscribe to Advisory Opinions on Apple, Google, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Or at thedispatch.com.
0: Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of The Remnant Podcast, um, brought to you by Dispatch Media and thedispatch.com. Go to thedispatch.com to sign up for newsletters, to find out about all our other podcast wares, um, to live longer, be taller, and to be generally a happier person. Um, Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at DoorDash and at Ernest. More about them in a little bit. So uh, one of the comments I saw on iTunes, and thank you for all the positive comments, is that sometimes I rely too much on AEI um, for guests. And I think that I understand the complaint. Um, I just reject it. Uh, <laughs> because in part, given my busy schedule of day drinking and burying bodies in shallow graves, um, sometimes we, have, we also have guests fall through and all of the rest. And one of the wonderful things about AEI, other than the paycheck and all of that, and the intern pens, um, is that I, uh, in a pinch, I can always grab one of the top people in the universe on a given subject and have an interesting conversation with them. And that's what I'm doing today with my colleague here at AEI. I don't know your formal title, Derek Scissors, but um, we just refer to you as like the China trade guy.
1: That's close enough. My formal title is resident scholar, because it's a pompous AEI title thing.
0: Okay, Um, I did not find out until I had Gary Schmidt on here a few weeks ago that the reason why I'm a fellow and not a scholar is I don't have a PhD, but I guess you have a PhD. I do. All right. And what was your PhD in?
1: Political... International Political Economy. Okay. That, that makes sense.
0: Um, okay. So, uh, we are avoiding the primaries. We're recording this on the day of the uh, New Hampshire primary. We're avoiding all the Sturm and drong about Roger Stone, and we're talking about something that's been in the news quite a bit of late. China and trade and Huawei and maybe a little coronavirus. So um, first of all, where are we in the trade war with China right now?
1: Ceasefire. Uh, so we signed a deal. Uh, it's not binding. It doesn't go through Congress. It's just President and Xi Jinping, as the General Secretary of the Communist Party, saying, OK, we agree to this until we don't. And we signed that deal January 15th. It goes into effect February 14th, 30 days after we signed it. Um, And during that deal, the Chinese are supposed to stop stealing our stuff Mm -hmm. and buy a lot more American products. And we basically don't do anything. So it's an unbalanced deal in our favor, which is what President Trump said he was going to get. The question is, why would the Chinese do it? So we're going to be watching that process. Are they going to stop stealing our stuff? Are they going to buy a lot more American products? While they do that, the trade war is off. The President will not allow other major actions against China because he wants the benefits of this deal. In a few months, if we decide, no, they're not actually buying our products or they stole a bunch of stuff as they were just accused of stealing with regard to Equifax uh, personal information, then the trade war can be back on. But we have a ceasefire pending the Chinese being better trade and intellectual property partners.
0: Okay, let's break that down for a second. If it's a ceasefire, does that mean that the tariffs we've imposed in the past are lifted or we're just not implementing new tariffs? It's mostly
1: that we're not implementing new tariffs. The president cut one set of tariffs in half, but the big tariffs were from spring of 2019, uh, when the Chinese walked away from the table or or changed their offer to effectively walk away from the table. And we imposed a 25% tariff on $200 billion worth of Chinese goods. That has not changed. So the bulk of our tariffs that we imposed are still in place. The ceasefire is, we're going to stop on the tariffs and see if you'll behave better. The administration says that's the whole deal, uh, to be blunt. I don't believe them. Mm-hmm. I think if the Chinese make their purchases through the election, which would make the trade data look good, help President Trump fulfill one of his campaign promises, the president will then say, all right, now we're going to cut tariffs. So this is supposed to be a two-year deal, but I think it's a one-year-in-review deal with mm-hmm. the one year, of course, coming after the election.
0: One of the things you hear, you know, like President Trump talks a big game about how this is going to be great for our farmers and all of this kind of stuff and the... Um, first of all, we're now giving more indirect subsidies to farmers than Obama gave to Detroit to bail out the auto industry. And there's very little complaint from all the people who were screaming socialism when that happened. But moreover, my understanding, and you just got to know this a lot better than I do, is that the problem isn't just the hit that the farmers took in the last calendar year. It's that other countries have taken their place as the suppliers for soybeans and all that kind of stuff. Um, even if the trade deal goes swimmingly, are, are American farmers just going to be just dealt a grievous blow from all of this stuff regardless
1: going forward? If the trade deal goes swimmingly, no, because as it's been criticized, you, you talked about like government intervention in the market where we're subsidizing farmers. The, one of the attacks on the trade deal is it's managed trade, which it is. Yeah. Right? We have very specific targets, $76.7 billion of purchases in the first you know, rolling 12-month period. Boy, that, that's pretty specific. Um, if the Chinese buy everything they're supposed to, those competing producers, Brazil, Argentina, and so it was Canada, not anymore, uh, because they have their own problems with the Chinese, Australia, who've pushed American farmers out, they're going to get pushed out by the trade deal. Mm -hmm. And that's the Chinese saying, as they always have, they're very consistent about this. President Trump is right about this. You're the big kid on the block. We're going to give you what you want. And the smaller people, well, sorry, you know, look, we don't really want to do this, but come on, look, you're you and they're them. And that's that. So if if the trade deal goes swimmingly, we're going to have a boom period for, for farmers for a couple of years. Hopefully, we'll get rid of the subsidies for Pete's sake. I my problem is okay what happens after that now we got a farm sector that's more dependent on China right they tried to push the, China, the the farm button in the dispute with the U.S. before. If you're an American farmer, you know, bank the hope the trade deal goes well, bank that money, and find a way to diversify because you do not want to be relying on the Chinese going forward either because there could be an American-China confrontation or because the Chinese are going to play you. Mm-hmm. They're going to say, "Oh, oh, oh, man, there's a problem with your soybeans. There's a problem with their beef, and so on. Just can't buy them now." You know, unless you guys shut up about Taiwan. Right. And so American farmers, if the trade deal goes well, are going to do do really well for 12 to 24 months. That does not solve their problem because we've now politicized agriculture. The Chinese did it, but we went along with it. And that means they're going to be vulnerable 36, 48 months from now.
0: Um. So just a curiosity question. How do you tell in real time if they've stopped stealing our stuff? Isn't there a certain amount of lag between... The theft and the realization of the theft? When it comes to IP, if you rob a bank, you notice in the morning the safe is empty. If someone steals your IP, it could be 18 months before some
1: product or some development comes down the line, right? Nail on the head. Um, We have this two-year deal... The IP part of it is a multi-year process. Maybe at the end of the two-year deal, we'll, we'll, we'll have a formal process on IP. First, got to get the companies to realize it. Then they've got to admit it. Then the U.S. government has to decide, well, what are we going to do with it? Then there's an enforcement process, which has lots of consultations and meetings. So, you know, the Chinese could break the agreement day one mm-hmm. – and maybe in 2021, we'll say, "Hey, you broke the agreement." So, what we're seeing in live t- in real time is their purchases, and that's what the president cares most about. So, you're absolutely right. IP is a problem intrinsically. Uh, it'll be a problem we have to take up in 2021. The deal in 2020 is really about what they buy. And
0: um, again, just for my edification, um, I understand. I read in the newspapers that that. The Chinese government is behind a lot of these thefts of IP and all that, but are there cutouts? Are there are there thefts of IP that aren't sanctioned by the Chinese government, or is everything have to be done by your leave? Because if you get caught acting without the government say so, you could be in huge trouble. I mean, how how much of it is act truly black market kind of piracy, and how much of it is state sanctioned sort of gray market kind of piracy?
1: Well, uh, there's directly sanctioned by the Chinese government, and there's effectively welcomed by the Chinese government, but not directly sanctioned. So let's start with effectively welcomed. If you're participating in an American technology project, and technology doesn't have to be just semiconductors. It could be biotechnology. Right. It could be you know, autonomous vehicles for cars, anything technology the Chinese don't have, and you're participating in that project. Basically, the Chinese government says to you, you bring that stuff back to China, you're not going to get prosecuted. You're going to make a lot of money. They didn't tell you to steal it, right? and they didn't promise a reward, but it's a very hospitable environment for people who steal trade secrets. Um, You never get prosecuted. You get protected from American prosecution. There's a lot of money involved. So that's effectively welcomed. Then, at the kind of strategic level, where the Chinese we want to catch up to America in this area—that would be semiconductors, for example—that's where it's state-sponsored. That's where they go after particular trade secrets, and they also go after Americans' personal data. Um, and that I think that's disturbing to people on a on a, a deeper level, because we all understand why countries want technology. The Chinese aren't the only one who steal. They steal more than anyone else, but they're not the only ones. But when they want your personal data, that sounds like they want to blackmail future American government officials, which is much more vicious than just, hey, the state's lending a helping hand to Chinese corporations. That's bad, but it's not vicious. So maybe there are even three categories. There's effectively welcome, directly sponsored, and then the really nasty stuff, which is going after individual Americans.
0: So is there... Any evidence yet that they have gone
1: after individual Americans? Oh, there's tons of evidence. Um, They they have most of the database breaches, OMB, Equifax, are traced back to the Chinese. Of course, they then totally deny it or they say it's some rogue entity in China as if they would allow a rogue entity to be running around pilfering other people's networks without cracking down on them. So you know you don't you don't get a huge amount of data, big data, and then naturally hone in on an individual person. What you're gathering as you do this repeatedly is a a file that you could get if somebody shows up um, in the U.S. government in a sensitive position. So I'll just personalize this. Maybe 10 years from now, in some important position in the U.S. government, and they have evidence on you know where did you you had a bank withdrawal from some Russian bank. By the way, I do not have a bank withdrawal from some Russian bank, but if that's in my file, I go from doing something questionable and embarrassing to having the Chinese have leverage over me. Mm-hmm. And that's what they're looking for here. It's not a direct theft and now they've got you. It's a, it's a collation of all of these thefts. And then they say, what do we have on the new undersecretary of state? Right. But I, I guess my question is, have we found, has there
0: been any, I can't remember, has there been evidence of an actual person saying that we've actually... Seen that the Chinese have tried to black som- blackmail
1: someone? Well, that's something that doesn't come out very clearly. We we get sort of ties to China, changed behavior, uh, they get charged with something. I'm not aware of a smoking gun for uh, an Ameri- a senior American politician. I'm aware of lower level people being uh-huh. compromised by the Chinese, and I'm aware of stories in other countries that you know I'm not a first hand participant. I don't know what's going right. on. But for example, we certainly have. Uh, times where the classic intelligence traps. You go over to China and suddenly there's this incredibly beautiful woman who's so interested in you. I'm like, well, when I left, no beautiful women were that interested in me. So if you're going to do that, then why wouldn't you grab the personal data, which you've taken the time and trouble to steal to also work on people? So the answer is, do we have a a major American politician that we know has been compromised in this way? No, but the Chinese are doing it for a reason.
0: So um, I wouldn't expect you to know this, but I am Uh, one of the foremost champions of updating letters of Mark for the digital age, and we should have uh, sort of militia-type privateers out there counter-hacking and doing these kinds of things with the kind of plausible deniability that the Chinese and the Russians have. Um, um, But it does seem strange to me. I'm just curious what your thoughts are on this. I mean, it seems strange to me. If, If the Chinese sent a bunch of commandos... And they broke into the building of OMB at night and stole paper documents. You could see people talking about act of war. You know, you could see missile strikes as reprisals. I mean, it would be a big deal. But because this is all done with ones and zeros by nerds drinking Diet Coke and Guangdong or something like that, we don't treat it as the same kind of violation of our sovereignty. Do we, How would... How, Do we need a bigger uh, sort of an updating of our way of framing these things, of thinking about these things? And how would we do it?
1: Uh, I agree with you in principle. Um, I think data theft, data is the the new gold, it's the new oil. I don't mean it's replaced oil. I'm just saying there's another thing that's just as important. And if the Chinese came in and said, hey, we're, we're taking all, thanks very much for sh- the shale, like we're taking it, we would say, no, you're not. Right. And so we shouldn't be ignoring their data theft. The, obvi- the comp- obvious complicating factor is the one that you talked about, which is when they stole the Equifax data, we didn't know right away who mm-hmm. did it. We had our suspicions, but that's different than proving it. Whereas right. you get photos of Chinese commandos, it's a lot easier to track. So I think the failure is on our side is we, we, we have very short-term memory. Like by the time we've conclusively proven that the Chinese, North Koreans, Iranians, Russians, whoever it happens to be, has taken this hostile action against the United States, other stuff has happened in between. So this is a, an exaggerated version, but if the Chinese hacked us in some important way in December or November of last year and then we signed a trade deal, well, now we signed a trade deal. Mm-hmm. Let's forget about it becomes a law enforcement action instead of a national action. Uh, That's a mistake. And we have to come up with some sort of apparatus where it's okay to take a year or two to figure out who did it and Mm -hmm. then punish them accordingly. What I've suggested as a partial solution, doesn't get to everything you are talking about. And I'm I'm interested, given your status, uh, uh, your recently revealed status, as what you think (laughs) about it. Um, I have said for years... uh, this is one of the reasons I was involved in the Trump administration decision making a little bit early on is that we should be punishing Chinese state-owned enterprises who receive the benefits of stealing intellectual property. Mm -hmm. I don't care who stole it, right? right? I mean, they could hire somebody else to steal it. I want to know if they gained from it, who gained from it. Um, And the reason I focus on state-owned enterprises is that centrally controlled state-owned enterprises, the biggest Chinese companies, are the flag bearers for the Communist Party. That's who you hurt if you want to teach the party a lesson. You're not going to stop them from all their stealing. That's not going to happen. But you can slow them down. You can make them think twice. And you know, once we have that framework of, if we see some trade secrets or other information end up in your hands that you're using to blackmail an American, to coerce an American company, whatever it happens to be, you're you're going on a long-term punishment list. It may take us two years to figure it out, but then you're mm. going to be punished for five. Right. And we can scale up that punishment uh, according to the severity and the, and the number of, of violations. Um, so I agree with you. I think the problem has been a long-term you know th- these are this is a long-term process we need to follow and i want a blacklist of centrally controlled state-owned enterprises it will work to some extent it won't work perfectly but if you you get the favorite firms of the chinese communist party banned around the world from dollar transactions they'll change their behavior so on um on the ip theft i mean one of the things
0: that you often hear when you start diving into this is yeah there's there's the you know the digital ninjas who straight up steal stuff and hack stuff, but a lot of the IP is actually lost because American firms are complicit. They agree to sign on to these. Um, you know, if you have to have a Chinese partner, you correct me if I'm wrong, but you have to have a Chinese partner if you're going to do business in China. In some sectors, yeah. And then you you have to sign these deals, and you you have to show your basically show your hand in terms of a lot of your IP, and then it's just the cat's out of the bag. And a lot of these places, a lot of these firms think even though it's terrible, it's worth, it's a Faustian bargain because then you get access to the Chinese market and you get and Chinese labor and all of these kinds of things. Um, and then they go home and they go crying and saying they're stealing our IP, but they're the ones who signed the paperwork.
1: Right. So IP theft, which is a big problem, theft of personal data related to that. And then technology coercion, which is what you're talking about, related but separate issues. So technology coercion is, there's a WTO rule that says you can't make market access. If you're a WTO member and the other com- com- the company is from another WTO member, you can't make market access conditional on technology transfer. And the Chinese just break that rule all the time. And they kind of admit it. And they say, well, the firms are just doing what's best for them in the China market. Mm-hmm. And what's best for them in China market is give us that technology or else. Right. Um, and you're right that the firms, there, there's a two-faced element in this. The firms will come back here and say, well, we want Ameri- you know, American government help to make the Chinese stop, but don't use our names. And I've tried to convene meetings between companies and important senators. and like, no, no, no. You have to go to the meeting. We can't go to the meeting. I'm like, well, I don't represent your company, right? right. Um, so that's not going to work as well without you there. And they don't want to show up. So there's an element, there's a two-faced element on the firms that they do want American government intervention. They do want less Chinese pressure, but they don't want to admit it. And the reason for that is, and this is this is the big difference between firms and and the government. The firms are thinking about in the next few years, I'm going to make a lot of money, and somewhere down the road, this this coercion is going to hurt us. But I don't really care. I got stock options. I'll move on to another job. Right. Firms are not American shareholder companies are not set up for thinking ten to fifteen years down the road. They're not maybe not set up for thinking five years down the road the government has to think about this differently. The government has to think like, I don't really care that you're making a lot of money in the short term, even though firms think that's the most important thing in America is their short term profitability. And I do care that 10 years from now, we're going to see as we see in telecom, the Chinese having pilfered a whole bunch of companies, and now they're the leading uh, telecom equipment makers. So again, there's a time horizon problem here where um, the American government has to be able to say to its firms, stop whining about how we're costing you your current profits, which is a battle i have to face every single day like no, no no don't do anything mean to the chinese because we're making money right now and you have to look down the road and this is a hard thing what technology really matters to us oh the chinese stole the profit margins of an american supermarket chain we don't care mm-hmm. the chinese stole backward chip technology we don't care the chinese stole new biotech okay we care mm-hmm. and you're going to have to figure out it doesn't matter what the firms say. It matters what's what matters to the country. Set them aside and and deal with the problem as you've just described in saying technology coercion on on stuff the government cares about is intolerable. The firms can make their own choice, but we're not accepting it. We have a technology coercion chapter in the in the trade deal that we signed last month. If you look at the first chapter, which is on IP, the first chapter has some good stuff on IP. It's protecting e-commerce. Good. The technology coercion chapter is a total waste of time. Mm -hmm. It has a bunch of things where the Chinese have denied they've ever done any of these things. So they just signed an agreement saying, we will continue to deny we've ever done any of these things. (laughs) Um, That's not going to help. It's not enforceable. It's not researchable. Um, So... We're going to make some progress on IP, but on the issue you talked about, where American firms are complicit a lot of the times, the government's going to have to have to go past that. And as you know very well, a lot of American international economic policy is made by companies, mm-hmm. right? Because we're trying to help the company. So it kind of makes sense up to a point. But in the, with Chinese technology coercion, it doesn't make sense anymore. You have to just say, no, we're, we're not interested in your short-term profit. We're interested in the long-term risk to the US economy. So we're already
0: come down on, I mean, this is just a natural segue, where do you come down on the Huawei stuff? Um, for listeners who don't know, uh, Great Britain uh, just agreed to use Huawei tech for its 5G networks. Uh, we were very, very cross about this. Um, we've been trying, the US government, the Trump administration, I think defensively defensively, defensively has been trying to get uh, our allies to not go along with Huawei because if the Chinese have those networks, it's a huge security risk,
1: but that's, at least that's the argument. Where do you come down the hall? I disagree with you some. Uh, I've been following Huawei for more than 20 years. It's a bad company that stole a lot of stuff, and it benefited from a lot of stuff that Chinese stole. You might look back in time and see such, you know, companies like Nortel and Lucent and Motorola, all dead, or in Motorola's case, a minor arm of another Chinese company. Mm -hmm. And that's because the Chinese stole that technology, and Huawei benefited from it. It's the classic case of I don't know exactly who stole it, but I know who got it. Mm -hmm. Um, So Huawei has built itself. Cisco is another company Huawei stole from. Huawei has built itself up to this point where it's like, well, now we do our own R&D. I'm like, well, you know, after you steal a million dollars from me and you invest it really well, I, you know, you don't get to say, well, now I'm investing really right. well. Um, so it's a bad company. Um, but it's retrospectively bad. You know, We're punishing it for things it did before more than things it's doing right now. That's one issue. A second issue is it's really easy for us to ban Huawei. We don't really do that much business with Huawei. They don't have a network in the U.S. in a formal sense. And even that ban, the Trump administration doesn't want to stop U.S. exports to Huawei because it wants to make money off those exports.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's hard to go to a com- country like Britain or other countries and say, well, we don't have a substitute for you. This is going to cost you billions of dollars, but too bad. We're asking a lot of our allies. We're not doing that much ourselves. Um, the, the, Huawei has been put on something called the entity list. So the entity list bans direct exports from the United States to Huawei. So what happens? American firms just move someplace else, and then they give the components to Huawei. Yeah. That's worthless. We have in front of us a set of comprehensive export controls, which would be much more effective in limiting our contact with Huawei. Trump administration is not producing them. Mm-hmm. So there's an inconsistency in, in what parts of the administration really want, which is to bring their hammer down on Huawei, and other parts of the administration who, you know, okay, we want to denounce Huawei, but we don't want it to cost us any money. And yet at the same time, we want our allies to, to give up on what is a bigger economic stake for them. The other part of the reason I disagree has nothing to do with Huawei itself. It's just, I just... I don't think telecom equipment is as important as semiconductors. I keep bringing up semiconductors for a reason. What Mm -hmm. does telecom equipment run on? It runs on chips. Quantum computing, chips. AI, chips. That's where I want to put our eggs in a basket. Let's get our semiconductor policy down where we block We have the lead in semiconductors. We block the Chinese off. If we're producing the best semiconductors, it's going to be really hard for them to compete in the long term on telecom Mm -hmm. because we're always going to be more innovative than them. So part of this is just practical, which is, okay, if we walked the walk on Huawei, we'd have more credibility with our allies. We're not doing that yet. We're talking a lot, Mm -hmm. but we're not acting. And part of it is, I really wish that semiconductors were at the center of this rather than telecom. So the actual issue,
0: is it that the that we can't trust Huawei not to put back doors in this stuff? Or, I mean, you would think that those back doors would be detectable in some way. um, Because it's not just, it's not like plumbing pipes where you can see everything that, you can see their functionality from the surface, right? There's there's little gremlins doing weird things inside of semiconductors, I don't understand. But, um, or is it just that we don't trust that Huawei will just do whatever the Chinese government says, and they'll have the control panels to be able to do it. I mean, what is the specific security concern?
1: So we start off with the fact that if you're a Chinese firm, you exist at the sufferance of the party. Right. So the idea that Huawei will not do what the government says it, it tells it to do is ridiculous. Right. The, the, their officers will all disappear. The company will be called something else the next day. Right. Um, and everyone who didn't cooperate with the parties, their life is over. So, it's not like with
0: Apple, which refuses right. to give a backdoor to its pr- encryption right. stuff.
1: Right. I mean, we have... We have a process here. We have a press. We have courts. Um, They don't always work quickly or perfectly. But the Chinese just have, do what we say or you're gone. I mean, no one will ever see you again. Um, And that's literally happened with the heads of major Chinese companies. So Huawei is very well aware of this. They will do what the government tells them. So that brings it down to the technical aspect. And the technical aspect has two components, one of which is that the Chinese will divert data. And the the not at all reassuring part about this is China Telecom, which is a very large Chinese uh, traditional state-owned wired service... Provides most of the the regular telecom uh, service in China has multiple times diverted data from the U.S. that happened to get back to China. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's not clear that they were grabbing anything in particular. Maybe it was just a test run. So we have this idea that the Huawei is just going to go, "Oops!" You know, this communication from Britain to the United States has just ended up in China. I don't know what happened. The other possibility, and this is, I'm not a technical expert, and I don't know how feasible this is. First one is certainly feasible is that they just mess with the tele- the, the equipment, sorry, the communication lines. Period. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's some sort of crisis over Taiwan, and they, you know, send a virus through the British network to the American network. I can't evaluate how likely that is. Right. But it's more likely if they're involved in the network of a U.S. ally than if they're not involved in the network of U.S. ally. So obviously, Britain here, you now Norway, for example, did not choose Huawei as its preferred partner countries that are treaty U.S. allies, that we have close communications with, whatever the level of threat, it's got to be higher in those countries than in countries we don't have secure communications with, which is why we're very sensitive to Britain. And like I said, I'm not a technical expert, but there are two possibilities. They divert data, which they've already done, or they actually harm the communication system. So um, I was talking to a senator about this
0: not too long ago, and the point that this person said um, part of it was that there's a sort of collective action problem in Europe in that Huawei's offering things much cheaper than the nearest competitors, and it's just as good or it's serviceable, but it's much cheaper. And unless everybody agrees not to use Huawei, you're really not fixing any of the security problems if one or two of your allied European partners... Have Huawei because it's so in- interconnected. Is that
1: right? Well, so there's an overlapping problem. We have our treaty allies in Europe that we have one kind of military communication with, and that's part of the EU. And then the EU has the rest of the EU. So there's a, there's these concentric circles. We only care really deeply about our our close friends that we're trying to share classified information with or real-time information with during a crisis. But the EU has to care about about those other countries. Mm -hmm. So we might be happy with, I don't care what Bulgaria does. Go ahead, take Huawei equipment. But the EU can't be happy. So they're stuck in like, if we give the Americans what they want, we have to push that on the rest of the EU, which is going to cost us a lot of money. Mm -hmm. That's where you get these huge figures for how much it's going to cost. Because it's not just one country. It's a whole bunch of countries. And recently, Attorney General Barr decided he was, ai don't know, an economics official um, and was talking about how we could support or buy stakes into Nokia and Ericsson which of course are European telecom companies that compete with Huawei and they're not in very good shape because they're not heavily subsidized the way Huawei is. That's the kind of thing that needs to be done to give the Europeans make the Europeans feel like they're not blowing money. Capital comes in from somewhere to make Nokia and Ericsson better partners in the long term and then they're willing to stay away from Huawei. But it's expensive. Mm-hmm. They have a point. If we what we want is more limited, what they naturally want is is to have all of Europe outside of not using Chinese equipment, and that's in the tens of billions of dollars. Glad you brought up this bar thing.
0: Um, I don't like the attorney general getting involved in economic policy discussions. It's it's just a bad look, it seems to me. That's that's a new thing, isn't it?
1: Yeah, you'd think he'd had enough on his plate as it is uh, that he didn't need to step into a very messy situation that a lot of other people are working on already in the Trump administration in the Congress. I understand that we've been having these discussions within the administration and and in Congress and, you know, in the policy community in general about, all right, we can't just say no Huawei. We need an alternative. And one of the options is maybe we should help knock Ian Erickson out. Okay, fine. But the Department of Commerce can talk about that. The Department of Treasury can talk about that. The Department of State can talk about that. The Department of Defense can talk about that. FTC. There are lots of places. We're covered. Uh, I don't know what promoted him to do that, but it, it was upsetting because it raised that possibility to a new level. It's mm-hmm. not his job. Right. The possibility may or may not be a good idea. He shouldn't be dictating the timing of the discussion. And it adds to this impression that the Congress has that the Trump administration is completely confused on this issue. Mm-hmm. All right, so
0: um, one last thing on the Huawei thing, because okay. listeners who aren't paying close attention to all this stuff might not understand why this is a big issue in the first place. Huawei is putting out, is in the race to, for updating people's telecom networks to 5G. Why is
1: 5G important? Well, there's a dispute over this. Um, 5G is already being implemented in the US and China. So you might say, I didn't really notice. Did anyone notice there are two economies taking off? Did you notice your phone is like, can make you fly now or whatever? No. Um, so some so people- 5G is not going to get me jetpacks? Because I want jetpacks. <laughs> It'll get you a nice picture of a jetpack. <laughs> um some people think that we're, when we're fully into five G, we'll be creating new apps. That'll be the new apps, and that'll be a new driver for ec- economics. And we've already always done that first here, and and you know we were first in four G and three G and so on. And so we'll lose this economic driver to the Chinese. Um, again, we don't have evidence of that. It could happen. There are already people talking, of course, about six G and saying it's going to be totally different than five G. Right. In which case, we may not ever get that first burst of five G apps because we're all going to be waiting for the six G apps. Um, you know, the military side of this, I think, is clear. You don't want your military communications compromised. You don't want data, personal data, other data diverted to China. The economic gains from Huawei, you know, I don't really see it. And I would say, as a China expert, Huawei's model is not to make a lot of money for China. It's to get heavily subsidized and go build equipment in a bunch of countries who then depend on the Chinese. Right. So it's a diplomatic model. You know, Ethiopia's telecom network depends on China. Ethiopia has 100 million people in it. It's, not, it's an important country in Africa. They need the Chinese now. So that matters. Mm. But it's not this gigantic economic breakthrough. It it does It hasn't started off that way. It's never really been a compelling story, you know, this is a way for some firms to boost their stock prices.
0: So it's more like part of the Belt and Road thing than a economic sort of straight business play?
1: You know, there's always this possibility. You never know where a breakthrough is going to come from. But as I said before, the real power in, in, a, in a breakthrough in quantum computing, suddenly everything's different, comes from the chip. It mm-hmm. doesn't come from the telecom equipment. The telecom equipment is generally secondary. Can I, am I confident that we aren't going to have a, a wave of great 5G apps? No, but the way the Chinese would get there is to subsidize like crazy, and you know that means it costs them a lot of money to get that position. We don't use Huawei equipment, so we're going to be in the same situation we were before. Mm-hmm. Our allies, if they just want, if this were a purely economic choice, I'd say go ahead and make your own choice, right? The Huawei equipment's better now. Who knows how it's going to work out? Um, the, the part that matters to our allies is military. For the U.S., we're not going to lose economically due to Huawei 5G because it costs the Chinese too much money to develop. And to be blunt, they're too slow.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, but I, I do want to say that one of the things that 5G might do is make DoorDash even better and faster than it already is. As you know, DoorDash is one of our uh, uh, most reliable and favorite uh, sponsors, and we're delighted that they're still with us. And it's a new year, and it's a new you, and if you want to win back some me time this year and pamper yourself, order with DoorDash so you can focus on you. Valentine's Day is also approaching, and you forgot to make reservations. It's like they're talking straight to me. Don't settle for the last table available. Treat your date to delivery with DoorDash at home. DoorDash has something for every lifestyle, although I think it is pretty hard to order Bat or Badger or various wet market products from DoorDash, and that's all to the better. We'll get to that in a little bit. DoorDash has something for every lifestyle. On the go with no time to waste, order pick-up and pass the line. Having, tr- having trouble organizing a meal with your friends? We make it easy with group ordering. DoorDash is more than just delivery. Delivery is more than just pizza in 2020. With a selection of your favorite flavors from across the globe, you can order world cuisine from the comfort of your living room with DoorDash. You've got big plans for 2020, but when will you find the time to do it all? Order delivery with DoorDash and take back time in your day to finish that novel, shred that workout, or clean that cupboard. DoorDash brings all of America's flavors to your door. Ordering is easy. Open the DoorDash app, choose what you want to eat, and your food will be delivered to you wherever you are. Not only is your favorite pizza joint on DoorDash, but there are over 310,000 restaurant partners in 4,000 cities. So you might just find a new favorite, too. With DoorDash, you'll never have to worry about your next meal. So right now, our listeners can get $5 off their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter promo code REMNANT, not dingo, REMNANT. That's $5 off your first order when you download the DoorDash app in the App Store and enter code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T. Don't forget, that's promo code REMNANT for $5 off your first order with DoorDash. And thank you to DoorDash for being here a sponsor of the remnant. Okay, so so changing gears, one of the things I like about your stuff is that you have, um, and it, this just may be confirmation bias on my part, um, but um, you have a healthy dose of skepticism about uh, Chinese economic statistics and reports. Um, how to put this? What do we know about the Chinese economy, and what are we being told about the Chinese economy, and what is the difference between the two?
1: Um, So the the clear difference that everybody agrees on, you don't even have to be skeptical, is whenever there's a crisis, like say now, the Chinese... Don't tell you the truth. They might tell you the truth, some people think, in regular times. But mm-hmm. if there's a crisis, the financial crisis in 2009, SARS before that, you pick it. They just don't tell you the truth. They also don't tell you the truth when it's time for good things to happen for their leader. So Xi Jinping in 2017 was supposed to designate a successor and he didn't. So obviously the economy was going great. And that's why he didn't designate a successor, because he's the greatest leader ever. So there are lots of periods of times where we know the Chinese lie. they are also elements that the uh, parts of the economy that China is very sensitive about non-performing loans. What's a non-performing loan? It's, it's when you have a bank that lends money and they're never going to get the money back. And so it makes the bank look weaker. The loan was bad. It seems like there's a whole series of bad choices. Well, in China, the banks are all state-owned. Mm-hmm. So if you have high non-performing loans, you're basically saying the state has blown a ton of money. So therefore, you don't have high non-performing loans. That's the end of that story. Mm-hmm. Chinese have never put out a real unemployment number because for a while it was much higher. Now, China's getting older. There are fewer workers. So they'll probably put out a real unemployment number. Basically, if it makes the communist party looks bad and it's important you don't get a real number. And that means in times of stress is when you have to worry the most. So I'll give you a concrete example from now. The Chinese just reported rail cargo in January shrank 3% over the previous January. I'm like, "Okay, you shut down a major rail center entirely <laughs> and then you shut down a whole bunch of other rail centers and you have a 3% drop in rail cargo." I'm like that's not really believable, but nobody wants to report in the midst of the government trying to say, be calm, be calm, everything's fine, like these collapsing numbers. Right. So that's the basic point. Um, If you wanted to think about the long-term, the Chinese smooth everything. So they've had a really sharp decline in their growth rates, and they're not reporting it. They're reporting a decline, Mm -hmm. but they're not reporting as sharp a decline as actually has occurred. They've had a spike in income inequality. They're reporting an increase, but not the full extent of the increase. Those are the kinds of changes that they make.
0: Yeah, I I, I seem to recall a couple of years ago, was it G it was some major official it caused a bit of a stir who said that um don't look at the top line numbers that the chinese government puts out look at electricity consumption or something like that electricity
1: consumption bank loans and i think rail freight yeah that's li Keqiang, who's the number 2 official and has been marginalized by xi jinping possibly because of comments like that yeah um it's well known that that you know you don't trust the government. Uh, I start off every January when I do a review of China's year. I give a quote from the National Bureau of Statistics, where there's an air, invariably a hundred-word sentence praising how wonderful everything is, especially Xi Jinping. Right. And then they tell you the numbers. So like they're 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 telling you we're a propaganda organ here. Do you need <laughs> any more proof? Here are a propaganda organ. Now here come all these numbers coming right. from a propaganda organ. So I mean, the big pro. This should be accepted by most people. There are always people who want to use Chinese numbers or pro China and want to say everything's fine. The, the The complicated part is once you've accepted that the numbers are wrong, that doesn't produce right numbers for you. Right. right? All you have is I know this is wrong. What do I do? Um, people are already asking me about the impact of coronavirus. I mean, I'm never going to know exactly what the impact of coronavirus is. I can point out things that make absolutely no sense. Mm -hmm. And I can say, well, I think it's really X. You know, GDP growth is negative in the first quarter, which is what I think is going to happen. But I'm not going to know that. And Mm so... The real problem is not that people believe Chinese numbers at this point. I think very few people do. It's that we're left with, all right, well, what's actually happening? And there there are some external gathered numbers that might be more credible. There are numbers on Chinese debt. The Chinese tend to report accurately demographic numbers. So we know they're getting older. We know they're getting more indebted. Um, but that's the real problem. The problem is not people are being tricked and they really believe what China's saying. The problem is if you put aside what China's saying, you've got a bunch of guesses. Yeah, so I mean, that's what I was
0: going to ask. Like, um, first of all, would you like a fresca? I would love a fresca. Yeah, you <laughs> seem to be getting parched. You can keep this. It's, it's a real moment. Um, <laughs> These are the sounds of frescas being opened. <laughs> yeah, uh, quote unquote fresca. Um, so uh, let's say you're working at a at Goldman Sachs or the CIA or someplace like that.
1: Those are different organizations? Oh, I'm sorry.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Now who's being naive? Um, And, or for that matter, the American Enterprise Institute. And you have to prove the validity of your skepticism, right? What specific stuff do you, I mean, like what is the nuts and bolts? What is the stuff that you look at? Are there any lines of data that come out from the Chinese government that you're like, this I can trust? Or is it all stuff that you have to gather sort of the refractions from international organizations? Because you trust what the British report in terms of trade transactions with China more than you would trust what
1: the Chinese say, right? I mean- So can I brag? Uh All right. I'm going to start off by not bragging, which is hard for me, because I really want to start off by bragging. I mean, the first thing you do is you look for internal inconsistencies. So for a long time, I made fun of the Chinese because they would say, Income of urban residents rose this much, income of rural residents rose this much, and average income total rose less than the income of urban and rural <laughs> residents. Like, that's interesting. How did you manage to pull that off? Yeah. And they, you know, you would try to find numbers that made their individual reports look correct, and you never could. Um, they do that over time fairly consistently. So they're reporting fast GDP growth with slow electricity production they're like oh we've had a change in our economy we're not so industrial we don't use electricity anymore and then two years later electricity production soars i'm like okay well i guess we've changed back then it falls again they change back so you know you you can get if you're patient and you stick with it you can get them contradicting themselves that still doesn't tell you what's right um I've because of this, because of being a longtime China watcher is very skeptical, the Chinese is where we started. I've done two things to try to create your own data. And one of this is about China's international activity. It's following Chinese investment and construction around the world like the Belt and Road. Mm. So that we have actual numbers that that don't get falsified um, on what China's doing in Ethiopia, in Britain, wherever we want to talk about. And then the other is my my second job. Uh, thank you AEI for allowing me to have a second job at a part-time job at China Beige Book, which is the largest independent corporate survey in China, where we go to Chinese corporations and say, hey, how you doing? And Mm -hmm. so far the party has allowed us to continue to do that. Um, We're not asking about, you know, you're really heavily indebted and are about to go bankrupt, right? Because they're not gonna answer that anyway. We're just asking, hey, profits, revenues, what's what's going on? Um, And so you try to compile independent information. And the Chinese allow it up to a point and then they don't allow it. Uh, So yes, international exchanges, um, using different methodologies. So the Chinese will say, Oh, well, we consider all of these loans to be fine. And then someone else can say, Well, thank you for disclosing those loans, and we don't consider them all to be fine. Mm-hmm. Um, you can get at chi- true Chinese coal and cement production and so on by emissions. You can get emissions, you know, there are different ways to check on the numbers. So uh, China has become. Painfully important to stock markets and the profits of some American firms, and that means that you know the spotlight is on the fact that all these efforts we're adding up to is still not right I mean you mm-hmm. know we're still not getting the kind of data we need out of the world's second largest economy, but you can create these parallel data sets, partly by correcting what they put out and partly by gathering your own. Now, what you gather on your own isn't perfect either, mm-hmm. um, but it's a check against what they say. And when they say, oh, everything's fine, and you're like, well, I have seven indicators that say everything's not fine. If you're at the CIA, you're at AEI, you're at Goldman, you get more confident with those little bits and pieces you can gather when they all point down while the Chinese are pointing up.
0: Um. You know, it's an interesting point about the non-performing loans thing because it reminds me of how important it is to refinance your student loans with earnest. A little financial relief goes a long way. Student loan refinancing with earnest can help you pick a monthly payment that fits your budget so you can breathe easier today. Life can be unpredictable, but you don't want that to affect your bank account. Whether you want to lower your monthly expenses or pay off debts sooner, Earnest Student Loan Refinancing has a solution for you. If you are still paying the same rate you were when you graduated, odds are you could reduce your monthly payment and save big. Even if you have refinanced before, with today's low-rate environment, most people can save by refinancing again. Earnest is the easiest way to refinance your student loans, saving you time and money. Checking your new rate is fast and easy. To start, complete a few questions online. It only takes two minutes, and you'll get a personalized rate estimate, all without affecting your credit score. If you qualify, Earnest offers customizable loan terms and no fees. You can even combine private and federal loans. Imagine having one single monthly payment with one low rate already refinance a loan no problem you can still be eligible to lower your interest rate again plus the internet loves earnest customer service they have a rated they're rated 9.4 out of 10 on trustpilot so you'll always get the support you need so start saving today our listeners get a $100 $100 cash bonus when you refinance a student loan at earnest.com/dingo That's $100 cash bonus when you refinance a student loan at earnest, E-A-R-N-E-S-T dot com slash dingo, D-I-N-G-O. Go to earnest.com slash dingo today. Terms and conditions apply. So let's stay on the the Chinese skepticism thing and go slightly bigger picture. Um, I brought this up a few times on on this podcast. Um, The a big part of the story, a big part of the conversation we're having now about protectionism, about new forms of economic organization. You have Marco Rubio with his common good capitalism, you have Josh Crowley, Holly Holly, Holly. What's his name? The Missouri senator. Holly? Holly. Sorry. Um it's the Fresca. Um uh and uh, uh and it's all pred- a whole Bannon thing. It's all predicated on this Flat assertion that the predictions in the 90s that a as China got richer it would move closer and closer to be a more normal country and then eventually democracy and all of the good stuff would come and flow from that and uh, the consensus among a weird coalition of people is or an unusual coalition of people I should say is that it just didn't work and my response to that is it didn't work yet and it may never work right i mean that that's certainly possible but this um this flat assertion that we can make straight line predictions from the china of today to 20 years from now i don't think that's ever been true about any country um you know the predictions in 1986 you still had textbooks saying that the soviet union's economy was going to outperform the united states economy um Lots of things go awry. And if you look at, like, the coronavirus stuff, all of a sudden on social media, the Chinese are freak. the Communist Party is freaking out because people are demanding free speech because of this doctor who died. They're playing um, music-, music from uh, Les Mis, you know, uh, about the communards cheering and you know, all, you know, singing all their We the People stuff. Um, and a friend of mine who's a China hand told me a long time ago that the Communist Party is almost as afraid of the people as the people are afraid of it. Um, do you? What do you think about this whole debate about how we just have to sort of think it's baked into the cake that China is going to remain authoritarian or totalitarian or some quasi-mix between the two for as far as the eye can see and base all our assumptions on that?
1: Well, I think you you pointed at the big weakness of the critics That you started with, and I'm really one of them. But there's a weakness in the argument. If you say, "Oh, you know, President Clinton told us when we negotiate while negotiating with the Chinese, and then President Bush agreed with him that you know they were going to get richer and they're going to become more like us," and 20 years later, that's that's wrong. Well, you should be humble about what's going to happen 20 years from now when you've just identified that somebody said made a prediction that was wrong. Right. Predictions of the future are hard. But in this, in the particular case of looking 20 years ahead, I'm going to say something. You know, extremely critical of contemporary China, but hopeful about future China, which is a lot of China's problems are Xi Jinping, Mm and he is a cult of personality dictator. There isn't going to be liberalization under Xi Jinping. He's primarily concerned about other elites. You know, the surveillance state is not to monitor the people; it's to monitor potential rivals. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, China changed course. The China that we negotiated WTO accession with, with with Deng Xiaoping behind it and Jiang Zemin leading China at the time. It's completely, excuse me, completely different than the China under Xi Jinping. And we cannot expect Xi Jinping to go, I was just kidding the last seven years. I'm totally different than that. Right. But he's also not going to be in charge forever. He wants to be in charge forever, but he's not going to be in charge forever. So I think, you know, it, it, I had a conversation with Bannon about this a few years ago. Xi Jinping's China is an enemy of the United States. And President Trump's saying Xi Jinping's a great guy. I love him. Real, every time he does this, it just pains me. Mm-hmm. He's not a great guy. He's a vicious powerful dictator, but he's not all of China. And he's going to leave the stage one way or another, I hope horizontally, but that's a different story. And then we're going to get a different leader. And the guy before Xi Jinping, Hu Jintao, was kind of this robot. And the guy before that was more interested in liberalization. We don't know who we're going to get. Mm-hmm. So I would not, I would never, 10 years out, I might say, I don't, I don't see how sure. we're going to get anywhere with the Chinese. And we need to protect ourselves, military, economically, politically, from Chinese disinformation campaigns, all that stuff. But to say China's done for forever, something else you said is right on target, the Chinese aren't rich yet, mm-hmm. right? They're not anywhere close to being rich. The Chinese income, depending on how you measure it, is personal income is one eighth to one twelfth. Of the United States, well, you know, wh- whoever's listening, whatever your income is, cut it, you know, divide it by eight, and, and yeah. see if you feel rich. And so, it's like forty four hundred dollars a year is the it's, yeah, it's, a, it's exactly. the well off, right, or something. That, like that. Well, that's that's what they represent as they represent the rich mm-hmm. in China as eleven thousand dollars a year. Yeah, and people are like, well, you know, things are cheaper in China, not where those people live. Right, they live in very high rent areas, Beijing, Shanghai, and so on. That's not that different from eleven thousand dollars a year in the U.S. Yeah. Now they've got some good stuff. They got they're very good on consumer electronics, but the rest of their lives are the lives of a middle-income country far away from the United States. So we haven't gotten to what rich China looks like. Um, so that prediction hasn't been false yet. Mm-hmm. It's going to be false while Xi Jinping's in charge. But you know, one of the Advantages, If you can say it this way of a cult of personality dictator is he doesn't want a successor because a successor is a threat, Mm -hmm. which means when he's done, there's going to be a shakeup. Same thing has happened with Mao. Mm -hmm. Same thing that happened will happen when Putin dies. Who's going to take Putin's place? We don't know. So I 20 years out, I agree with you. China isn't rich. We haven't tested that yet. We're going to have a different leader. We're going to have a different China. I think the, the the attacks on China come from a shorter time horizon, where in the next five to 10 years, we really need to watch ourselves.
0: Yeah, no, I totally buy that, right? So I want to try out this theory on you, because I've been meaning to write this for a while. Um, and I talked about this on the the, the Dispatches flagship podcast, which everyone should subscribe to. Um, when the Huawei UK thing came out, I noticed all of these headlines about, you know, uh, the we're in a new Cold War with China, how terrible it is that the Brits would do this. They never would have done this with the Soviet Union. And then if you start poking around, you know, if you start using the Google machine, you find out that people I'm talking about are a Cold War with China for a long time. And part of my problem with this is that it's sort of like every, my entire, li- our entire lives up until Iraq replaced Vietnam as the catastrophe in people's historical memory. Every time the U.S. would send troops anywhere, the New York Times would declare it's another Vietnam quagmire, right? They had no historical memory of any other war because the Boomers were running everything, and um, we now seem to think that the Cold War is the paradigm that describes our international relations with any major rival. And it seems to me that you know when the UK was uh, when we were dealing with the Soviet Union in the in and during the Cold War what was the Soviet Union going to offer the UK that it would want, right? I mean, it's like good deals on Trabants, you know, great deals on Ukrainian wheat. Uh, They didn't have technology that could compete with ours. Um, So it seems to me, I mean, I've been thinking about trying to figure out what a better historical analogy would be. And it seems to me that the better one would be sort of not so much the U.S. relationship with Germany at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, but really the UK's, right? The UK was the global superpower. And all of a sudden you have Germany, which was a late arrival to industrialization, late arrival to urbanization, and a late, late arrival arrival to uh, in, empire and colonization. And they wanted their place in the sun. They had all these chips on their shoulders about not getting the respect that they deserved. But they, unlike the Soviet Union to the United States in the 50s and 60s and 70s, Germans were, in fact, a serious intellectual and economic rival to the UK, right? Most scientific journals were in German, and German industry was really, really impressive. Um, And and German could compete to a certain extent in the sort of marketplace of ideas a little bit. That's the weird thing, is that the Soviet Union could compete on the marketplace of ideas because people thought that communism was this cool idea. I don't see, you know... The, the the pitch that China has in the marketplace of ideas is really to developing countries. It's not to any first world. No 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 one in Holland wants to be more like China. And very few people in the United States, except with the exception of Tom Friedman, want to be more like China here. Um, what do you think about the analogy? Is there a better analogy that I should be thinking of? Does that make sense?
1: Well, I, let me say something I know, and then I'll start rambling into stuff I'm just guessing about. That's um, what you're here for. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know we don't treat... There are people within the Trump administration, within the Congress, within the U.S. government, within the policy community of the United States, who want to treat China like the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. but we don't. What's the trade deal? The trade deal is the major event in U.S.-China relations during the first term of the Trump administration, and it's for us to export more to the Chinese. Right. Um, that's not what we did with the Soviet Union. We didn't sign deals so we could like export a lot more. Um, so the the number one problem is... You know, if if Steve Bannon were sitting right here, I'd say, Steve, I'm sympathetic, but you're not in charge. The guy who's in charge doesn't treat China like an enemy, doesn't treat China like Soviet Union. So you cannot go pointing your fingers at the Brits and saying you're betraying us. We aren't doing it. Right. So that's that's the starting point. And 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 why why aren't we doing it is we're still treating China as an important market. Um, You know. For, for obvious reasons, it is an important market. So, what I would look for historically um, is is that kind of relationship. And honestly, to me, the parallel is is easier than than Germany and and England. I don't know that much about Germany and England, mm-hmm. so I could be wrong. It's Japan and China. Yeah, Japan. Yeah is very suspicious of the Chinese. They're right next to China, like the UK and Germany. We're far away. We're like, oh, mm-hmm. ocean, you know, whatever. Do whatever you want. The Japanese really want to maintain their business connections to China. And they, Japanese government officials come to AI on a monthly basis, if not more often than that, saying, you need to do more to check Chinese technological advance. I'm like, well, but you got your company. Like, they try to do both at the same time. Mm.
0: So-, oh, so who's in charge of checking Chinese technological advance here at AEI. Just out of curiosity.
1: <laughs> I guess it's me, and I'm doing a lousy job. Um, I, I, you know, so, right, there, there's an issue of if the president doesn't want to do it, we're, we're not going to do it. It's, it's, right now, the ball's in the Department of Commerce's course, court, to be serious, but it's not going anywhere. So, I mean, that's, that doesn't get as much attention here. It's not this grand historical battle. But Japan, China is the premier power in Asia battle mm-hmm. for a long time. Um, and the Japanese are more advanced than the Chinese technologically. They're maritime. The Chinese are continental. We're maritime. The the Japanese want to sell into the Chinese market. They're drawn by it at the same time that they want to keep the Chinese out. So I think that's really the parallel. Um, And that to agree with you, that's not the Soviet Union. We're not treating the Chinese like the Soviet Union. We shouldn't pretend that we are. We shouldn't act like our allies should do it because we're not doing it. Uh, I think we could learn in a lot of ways from how the Ch- Japanese have handled China. Mm-hmm. They were really eager when China opened up, and now they're less eager. And it's not just because China's bigger and more powerful. It's because China's different. And you have to balance those two things. You have to balance, boy, Toyota makes a lot of cars in China. It's actually not not that many, but um, but also against, you know, we need to protect our technology and counterbalance the Chinese in our neighborhood, Southeast Asia, and so on. That's where I think the model is. It's it's not as easy to write about because all the writing about is in another language, and we haven't spent decades writing about the history. But it gets to your your basic point, which is China's not the Soviet Union. We're not treating it like the Soviet Union. We need a different way of, of thinking about it. Um, and I, you know, I would go with Japan-China. Yeah, that's interesting. I'll take a look at that.
0: Um. All right, so we're running towards the end here, getting towards the end here, but um, coronavirus. Um, we're, we, the irony here is, is that I was going to have Scott Gottlieb come here and talk about coronavirus. He's our colleague here, former head of the FDA. Um, and, uh, and instead, I have you here, so I still want to ask you about the coronavirus. Um, uh, what do we know about its economic impact? What can we guess about its economic impact? How much... How much scept? I mean, obviously you bring some skepticism, but how much skepticism do you bring to the numbers that they're releasing? All of that.
1: Okay, so if Scott were here, and by the way, Scott, you cannot complain about anything I say. If Scott were here, <laughs> um, he could talk about what American policy should be on the health side, and I and I can't. I'm going to just talk about China and the international economy because uh-huh. that's the stuff I know about. Um, if you can't... I'll start with the econ side because it's not as important, but it's what I know better. Chinese economic growth in the first quarter is, is driven by consumers going out for the new, Lunar New Year and spending right. tons of money. It's not production. There are holidays. It's consumption. All those people stayed home. They didn't just stay home in the Wuhan area where the virus broke out. They stayed home everywhere because they were afraid of catching the virus. Mm-hmm. So you're going to get... The Chinese have a choice of like lying. Mm-hmm and saying, oh, well, you know, growth fell. It was 6% in the fourth quarter on an annualized basis, and now it's 4%. See, we have... Refla- no, that's a lie. Mm-hmm. It's not, minus 2%. It's much worse than, than just them saying, oh, we'll, we'll quickly bounce back. But it's still temporary. Um, I don't mean to dis- dismiss the, the, not only the tragedy of people dying, but also people being quarantined and being kept away from their families. But, you know, China has a workforce of 800 million people that's not going to be touched by this. Mm -hmm. This isn't a a, an earthquake or a tsunami or anything that's wiped out crucial buildings. Those those are all there. All the factories are still there. As long as people recover fully from coronavirus in three months or whatever it is, their productivity should be the same. And we don't know that yet, but And there'll be some pent up demand too. Right, right. And so all the basics are the same. Now, I've already said, I think the Chinese economy is is not doing that well, but the trend really doesn't change that much. So the first quarter is going to be terrible. The second quarter might be terrible. I hope the virus burns itself out before then. But at some point, the third quarter is going to pick back up. And it's then you're going to have the base year effect where a year later, everything was really depressed. And so the new year is like, whoa, fantastic. And you'll get a big amount of growth. So if you're really concerned about companies right now, if you're, if you're involved in stock trading of a company that right now is on the edge, that's a problem. If you care a lot about what China is going to report in the short term, one, they may lie, but two, it may be really bad. That's also a problem. But the international economy, this just doesn't look like a problem yet. So obviously the way I'm wrong is that I don't understand the health side of this, which I don't. All I'm doing is looking at statistics. I'm going to get to your point about you know, are the Chinese telling the truth. Um, The best way in this case to look at whether China is telling the truth is look at what everybody else reports, because everybody else, you know, has reports on coronavirus, too. And as of last night, there was one death and it was a Chinese national. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping that that means the fatality rate of this is low. Now, the fatality rate in China is different because you know, maybe these people have been exposed over long periods of time, healthcare workers, people in the center of Wuhan. Wuhan also has- Also might not be getting treatment. Right. And if you treat the disease, it may turn out that it's just not that big a deal. Right. And they may be overwhelmed by, whereas whereas other countries are not. Wuhan has 850,000 people over the age of 60. And as we know from flu, tragically, older people are more vulnerable. So, you know, there's a reason to think that The fatality rates in China may not replicate themselves overseas. There are a couple of different reasons. Again, I'm not a health expert. In that case, you're not going to get this spread overseas of this massive Mm -hmm. human crisis and and disruption. I think the bad news, so I've said good news. I don't think it's going to matter that much economically over six, six months from now, a year from now. It doesn't look like very tentatively like it's going to spread that quickly because we after the first case is two months ago. It's more than two months ago now. We have one fatality overseas. Mm-hmm. The bad news is I don't think the Chinese are telling the truth about the number of dead in China. Mm-hmm. I mean they're saying it's over a thousand. Uh, you know, you immediately start with double that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there are thousands of people dead in Wuhan, and it is a terrible humanitarian disaster. Um, and that's the that's the big problem. I think the one thing Scott and I would definitely agree on is everything is vetted through the party apparatus. So first you try to figure out what's going on from your underling, who isn't going to tell you the truth because they think they're going to get in trouble. Then you right. try to report it to your superior, who you don't want to tell the truth in because you, you think you're going to get in trouble. Then if the actu- accurate information actually reached the boss, the boss doesn't tell the public because that's not part of the party's deal. They don't, they don't report honestly. Um, so what we think we know doesn't look that terrifying. It's worse than that for sure. Yeah. But the real problem is we don't know how much worse. Right. And that's the, that's the risk outstanding there that the Chinese, that we've decided there's a 14 uh, day period of incubation because the Chinese just told us wrong things. Right. And the period of incubation is longer and all those people overseas, they're going to be sick for a lot longer because the Chinese haven't reported data. So, you know, this is, I don't, you know, economically, this doesn't look like that big a deal, which is why the stock market is not freaking out. Um, we, the reason to be nervous, one, the Chinese aren't telling us the truth, but to two, to close on a bad note, cause I'm an economist and that's what we do. We try to depress everybody. We kind of got lucky this was in Wuhan. What if it was in Shanghai? Right. The cases overseas would be at least ten times what they are now, and the and trying to control them would be more than ten times worse because of the spread. So I think I'm right, very tentatively, on just on the basis of statistics. Mm-hmm. But that means if I'm right, we dodged a bullet, and somebody like Scott saying we better be ready for the next time is is absolutely on track. Yeah, and maybe they should stop eating bats and badgers and that kind of thing. Yeah, I, you know, <laughs> I don't, I don't understand. Like, some of this is, this isn't poor China, right? I mean, 40 years ago, there were Chinese people living in caves, mm-hmm. right? They ate whatever they had, and you didn't criticize them and say, how dare you eat something that's bad for the world economy? Right. But as we said, China's a middle-income country now. I mean, I think this has gotten to be a little bit weird. Yeah. It's like, uh, you know, we were so poor during the Depression, I ate dirt, and now I'm still eating dirt in the 60s. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, would, I wish they would stop. Bats are actually a delicacy for rich people.
0: So, so all right, that's interesting and <laughs> terrifying. Um, but this is one of the things that drives me crazy: is that I really thought I'm, you know, one of the places I'm a big liberal squish is on uh, charismatic megafauna. I like tigers and lions and rhinos and elephants, right? And I understand that the ivory trade is one thing; cause, uh, it's not a medicinal thing. But I kind of thought that Viagra was going to save like the white rhino. Because, or a lot of these tigers, because it seems to me that so much of the trade in this stuff is for rich Chinese dudes to deal with, you know, uh, uh, erectile dysfunction. <laughs> and, and, like, of you would think that Viagra would, like, we know it works, um, you know, it's got the market cap to prove it. Um, and instead they still eat and kill all of these animals and trade on all these animals that... Um,
1: Uh, I just think should be protected, but that's neither here nor there. And here I thought coronavirus would be the stretch out of my area. (laughs) (laughs) Derek Derek
0: Scissors uh, from the American Enterprise Institute, my colleague here. Uh, Second only to Jim Jordan in his consistency of never wearing a jacket. (laughs) It's great to see
1: you. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks for having me on. (laughs) I enjoyed it.
0: Okay, so Derek has left the studio. That's Derek Scissors. Um... I know I'm going to have a whole bunch of, I should have asked this or I should have asked that, but I thought it was pretty good. Um, Normally, you know, back in the old days, I would ask Jack Butler what he thought, and he would criticize me for the things that I forgot to ask. But Jack is now over at National Review, and the new Jack Butler is here. That's how I introduce him around AI. His name is Nick. Nick, welcome aboard.
2: Hello. Uh, I'm wiping the bad grease off of my face, sorry.
0: And, um... And your, your last name, remind me your last name again?
2: Pumpella. Pumpella. You have to do it while you, yeah, Pompella.
0: Okay. And um, uh, where were you before you came here?
2: Uh, before I was at AEI, I was at AEI um, for a period of like four months doing an internship. Um, but before that, I had just graduated uh, Penn State, worked in a newspaper for a while, and now I'm here.
0: The, uh, did you major in like tailgating?
2: <laughs> yeah, well yeah, it's uh it's I I was saying this actually earlier to dispatch people, but um it's like it's a little bit like Russia. Like you can get people together to drink and then everyone else is too cold to do anything. That's about all you can do.
0: Um so one of the one of the many downsides of Jack being gone is that um iOS used to say that with Jack because he was this marathon runner that the average of the two of us was a fairly typical healthy male. Um that's now gone. but uh Nick will be chiming in from time to time but you know frankly it's been like fifteen minutes since you were in the in the box and um we gotta put you back in. Yeah. Uh but welcome aboard. Thank you. How's it been so far?
2: It's been good. I saw sunlight today. So that was fun. Um, um, oh. No, <laughs> no, it's been great. Um, Jack, like, left behind quite a lot to uh, to kind of catch me up on and everything. So he kind of really did a good job with, with making things as easy as humanly possible. Yes. Yeah, so I
0: was wondering, were Jack's, like, notebooks sort of like um, the notebooks in the movie Seven? <laughs> uh, <laughs> with, like tales of, of vomiting on people on the subway and that kind of stuff?
2: No, they weren't quite that exciting. Um, he he left behind kind of just uh, like a closet of running shoes. Uh-huh. That was kind of uh, not so great. But that and and then all of the torture supplies are in like a cardboard box in the corner. But, you know, it's been good so far. All right. Well, that, that, that's enough out of you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, thanks again to
0: Derek Scissors. Thanks again to everybody. Please uh, keep up the reviews on iTunes, uh, Spotify, all those kinds of things. And if you say to Google Home or to Alexa, uh, play, uh, you know, Alexa, play the remnant, you'll get some other podcast. But if you say, Alexa, play the remnant with Jonah Goldberg, you'll get the euphonious and mellifluous, dulcet tones of this podcast, which is obviously what you need. Also, if you enjoyed the Bridget Phetasy, uh, um podcast from last week, we got a lot of great feedback about it. Um, also, some ample criticism that of her of all people, former Playboy columnist. I didn't ask her about uh, Bigfoot erotica. Um, uh, and I just basically, I was just too scared about what the answers might be. Um, but part two, where she interviews me, and I talked about a whole bunch of, weird things and it was a lot of fun will appear on her podcast walk-ins welcome this thursday so be on the lookout for that and after that uh i'll see you next time